Psalm 22 is where I want to look this morning and start by saying this psalm has been a great blessing to me personally, especially the last couple of years. Um, one of the things that has really been something that has sustained me personally is, is going to the psalms in times of trial and, and singing through them. Um, this psalm, the first 11 verses, um, I put to music and sing often in the evenings, and it, is, it has been a great encouragement. And I hope even this morning as we look at it that you won't see it as just a, a diamond in a museum to stop for this moment and to gaze upon, but that you will take this with you and stick it in your pocket and, and uh, take it with you in the trials that you face, that you will come back to Psalm 22 and take it out and marvel at the afflicted one and what hope we can find in the midst of affliction. And this is the theme of this psalm. We see great affliction in this psalm, and yet it, it ends with such tremendous statements of hope. This is a psalm of David. David uh, faced many trials, and he wrote this, but as he wrote it a thousand years later, another son of David came who used this psalm as well. And uh, I wish we had time this morning to look both at this psalm from David's perspective and then look at it from our Lord's perspective. But I think we will just focus on the latter this morning as David, a thousand years earlier, writes his own dealing with affliction. Our Lord Jesus took the same psalm, and it was his psalm, particularly in those final moments of, of um, suffering on the cross, and we notice that very clearly as it begins the psalm with the statement uh, that one of the statements, one of the seven, that Jesus cried from the cross. And no doubt Jesus knew this psalm as he grew up um, at a child. some point, he probably memorized this psalm. And uh, I don't know how it happened that it came to him in that moment, maybe as a child, knowing that he was going to, uh, he was coming to earth in order to suffer for us, for our sins, that that this psalm became one that became very important to him as he contemplated the great anguish he would suffer and yet the great hope he could have in the midst of his suffering. And so as we look at this this morning, listen to Christ speaking this psalm. Please read with me as I, as I go through this psalm. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. 
They wagged their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bowls encompass me, strong bowls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
Do you tend to grow weary and faint-hearted in affliction? I think we all do. What does God call us to? Consider him who endured this affliction. Let us consider our Lord, the afflicted one. Let us listen to his cries and consider what agony he went through. First, we see the cry of the afflicted one who was abandoned. We know that affliction is always intensified when it's experienced in loneliness. When you're in the affliction and there's no one to sympathize, no one to comfort. And this is how this psalm begins. One afflicted, in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here he's addressing my God. Jesus had a close relationship with his Father. He was his own God. His God, my God, is mentioned three times. And yet this close relationship it seems like it's been broken. Where's the contact with God anymore? He feels like God has forsaken him. He feels like the Lord is far away from him. He feels like the Lord is not hearing when he cries out, when he's groaning. The Lord is not listening to him. Why is this happening? Our Lord Jesus hung on the cross for three hours and then erupted into this cry of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In John eight twenty nine, Jesus said, My Father who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. But why has the Father broken this, this connection with his Son? Now on the cross, why is the Father so distant? Was it because the Son failed to please him? No, it was because we have all failed to please him. Because Jesus was under the weight of all of our sin. And the Father, the Holy Father, was distancing himself from his Son who became sin for us. And so we see the Son under this affliction crying out in abandonment. But if we look down to verse 6, we also see his humiliation. In verse 6, it starts, But I am a worm and not a man. What an astonishing statement. We've already spoken this morning about the glory of Jesus. Who is there so glorious as our Lord? Who is perfect, the perfect man, the one who exemplified love at its height, the one who showed true humility, the one so full of wisdom to be near to Jesus, to, to see him work, to hear his words. People marveled at him. The glorious, perfect man is now a worm. Scorned, despised, mocked, taunted. This is how he's treated there on the cross. And yet, he never responded rashly to all these taunts, to all these threats, but he continued to take all of this and bring it to his father and describe the anguish he was experiencing. In his humiliation, 
he cried out to his father, Behold the humiliation of our Lord, willing to become a worm for us. He cried while threatened. Verse 11 to 13. Verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. He needs God's presence, his nearness, because the trouble is near. There's no one else to help. And then he describes his oppressors. This group of those who had gathered around him, they were like animals, like strong bulls. They were coming against him. And these bulls were set on his destruction, surrounding him with their mouths open, hungry, ready to devour him, like a hungry lion that's waiting to pounce on the prey and destroy it. So Jesus was threatened continually there as he hung upon the cross, threatened while he was under our sin. Notice his crying in agony, verse 14 and 15. I am poured out like water, he said. His lifeblood steadily flowed out. Jesus was conscious of that. He was dying. His blood would be gone and he would be dead. All my bones are out of joint. You know what it's the pain, the pain of a sprained ankle or, or having a bone out of joint? All his bones there, pinned upon the cross, stretched out in an instrument of torture to cause the most pain. He goes on to say, my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Here, under the heat of all that's going on, it was like his heart was melting away. All the reserves of strength that were left within him liquefied away. And Jesus was there in helpless weakness. And he describes this lack of strength in verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. How are pots made? You take the clay, it has moisture, and you put it in a very, very hot oven. And you bake out every last molecule of water. Jesus, like a pot being baked, all of his strength was burned out of him till he was like a dry, broken piece of pottery. And with that came the next phrase, his tongue sticking to his jaws. When you get thirsty and there's no, no water and moisture in your mouth and your tongue is sticking to the roof of your mouth, remember our Lord on the cross. He cried, I thirst. He knew true thirst. And then he says, staggering phrase at the end of verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. Here he's not just describing what's going on in himself. He says, you, Father, have laid me in the dust of death. Man, we came from dust, and to dust we shall all return. Here Jesus knows that his broken body will be taken down from that cross. And whatever was left of him, his broken body was collected and put in the tomb in the dust of death. 
And who was doing this? It was his father who was bringing all this about as part of his plan. It was his father who was releasing all of his holy hatred of sin on his beloved son until the wrath was appeased. That is what Jesus suffered for us. And yet, what did he do in his suffering? He continued to cry. He cried in the torture in verse 16. Her dogs encompassed me, a company of evildoers encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Jesus knew he was an object of torture as hyenas gather around their prey, a whole pack of dogs. So the dogs gathered around Jesus to harass him until he was done for, until he was ripped apart as those hyenas, until they pounce on their prey. Jesus knew being scorned by everyone around. He knew that pain. And here we have a very detailed description of the piercing of his hands and his feet. As piercing the hands would leave a victim not able to defend himself, piercing the feet not able to run away, Jesus was pierced and pinned to the cross. His hands helpless, his legs nowhere to go, and the whole time he was willingly choosing to suffer in this way. The pain, the shame, the helplessness of being pinned on the cross for us. Isaac Watts said, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Was there ever a place of such love and sorrow combined together? There is no clearer place than right here at the cross. In verse 17, it talks about him counting all of his bones. He could look down. He was exposed. His clothes were removed, and he could count his bones protruding out. His clothes had been taken away, and someone else took those away, and then even the royal robe was taken from him and cast lots over down below the cross. He knew true poverty of having all of his possessions stripped away from him, even the clothes on his own back, taken by another, nothing left. Where did our Lord turn in all of this affliction? Where did he go? He kept crying out to his father. All of the pain and suffering, he brought it to his father. And we see this so clearly in verse 19 and 21 through 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. During his hours of suffering, Jesus continually offered up prayers for help, for deliverance. He longed for immediate deliverance for the affliction, but he did not only fixate on that. 
he chose to fix his mind even beyond his suffering to certainties as well. And this is what I want to look at in the second part, the certainties of the afflicted one. There was things that he knew would enable him to hope in the midst of suffering. And we see this sprinkled throughout this text going back to verse 3. Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, cried out to the Lord, and then he reminded himself of the certainty of God's holiness. In verse 2, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. He was perplexed. Why has my father forsaken me? But he was not perplexed about the character of his father. He didn't know what his father was doing and all the plans, how everything was working out. And so it is in our suffering. So much mystery in suffering. The confusion in suffering is part of the suffering itself. But there are certain things in the midst of suffering that never change that we go back to. The Lord is holy. He is set apart. He is set apart in his purity and in his majesty. And in heaven, the Lord is adored as holy, holy, holy. And nothing changes that from all the chaos and suffering that goes on in the world. There's something that doesn't ever change. It's the character of God. He is holy in eternity past to eternity future. And the one in affliction can find great comfort in that. No matter what is happening, my God is holy. And he is enthroned on the praises of his people. He's enthroned. He's sitting on a throne with king majesty as a king and power. And his people are still praising him, even though there's so much confusion in the present. Then he looks to the certainty of God's faithfulness to his father's. On the cross, you can picture Jesus going through this psalm as he knew it by heart. He recalls the stories of his ancestors, of those who were afflicted, and yet they trusted in the Lord. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And what did they experience? The Lord's deliverance. Israel, under the oppression of the Egyptians, they groaned. The Lord heard them. And the Lord sent them Moses to bring them out of Egypt. Hezekiah and Isaiah, they're surrounded by the Assyrian army. What are they going to do? Sennacherib's forces, just incredible, the amount of of forces that are coming against them. No way for them to, to survive this onslaught. Yet they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And what did he do? He sent the angel of the Lord at night and killed 180,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. The battle was over in the morning. They cried to the Lord, and he delivered them. Daniel was thrown in a lion's den, and what did he do? He cried to the Lord, and the Lord shut the mouths of the lions. And so he remembers God's faithfulness in the past, and even when you cannot even see because of the Suffering sometimes blocks our vision of what's going on in our lives. You cannot see what's going on in in front of you or your own life. You can look at what God's doing in the lives of others in the past and say, yes, 
he was a faithful God to them. He will be faithful to me. And then one of the most tender images in this whole psalm that has moved me so many times, verses 9 and 10, the certainty of God's faithfulness from his birth. In the midst, here is Jesus. What a, what a contrast. He's surrounded by enemies who are full of malicious hatred toward him. And yet he recalls a scene of back in his mother's arms, nursing from his mother, full of tender affection for him. He's on the verge of his death, yet he goes back to his birth. And he, and he recognizes that his birth is a sign that God has been faithful to him because God brought him out of that womb from the very beginning. God gave him a mother who cared for him. That's the faithfulness of God. And no doubt in Jesus' case, a mother who prayed for him hundreds, thousands of times, prayed for her infant, gave her baby to the Lord and dedicated him to the Lord. And so on the cross, Jesus remembers his mother and remembers God's faithfulness all the way from that time of childhood till now. And so the Lord would be faithful for what remained ahead. And all of us can look back and see God's faithfulness to us. From the day we were born, from the day even before we were born, Psalm 139, as the Lord formed each of us in our mother's womb, he knitted us together perfectly. And so when we face the darkness, we know we have the same God who has been faithful. Even in the darkness of the womb, the Lord was faithful to us. And so whatever darkness we face, he will continue in his faithfulness. Fourth, we see the certainty of God's deliverance and sympathy. And here is where the psalm changes directions, turns around. In, in him crying out to the Lord again and again, he's crying and longing for the Lord to hear him. And then this certainty comes. It breaks in the middle of verse 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. This assurance comes to him after persevering in prayer that the Lord will rescue him. It's done. He's going to be faithful and bringing that deliverance. And why is he going to be faithful? Now he's not only sure of deliverance, but the deliverance is connected to the sympathy that the Lord understands his suffering. And this is verse 24. Don't miss this verse. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The Lord understands suffering. He knows the degree to which we suffer, exactly the circumstances for which we suffer. And Jesus' testimony here is for everyone else who would be afflicted after him that they too could know that the Lord will not despise you when you bring your sufferings to him and describe them to him. He understands completely. God understands our affliction and always cares. When his children are bruised, he doesn't break them like a reed. 
when his children are like a candle that's sputtering out. He doesn't put out the little flame. Isaiah 42.3 mentions this. When the afflicted cry to him, his compassion grows warm and tender. Hosea 11.8. No matter what degree of affliction we face, Christ can understand. Hebrews says he is a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And that truth is a tremendous comfort in affliction. All of you who have believed in Christ, keep running to Christ when you face affliction. You will find him come near to you and experience the sharing in his sufferings that Paul talks about, where he ministers his grace to you in assuring you of his compassion and his love that somehow don't get deep into your heart in any other way but in times of affliction. And you here who have not trusted in Christ, you looking to other things, no doubt, when affliction comes, maybe they're not that serious and you can try to ignore them or put them off, but when the really hard afflictions come, how are those things worked out that you've turned to, to trust in? Let me tell you, there is nothing greater and better to turn to an affliction than God himself. Don't think that coming to him is, Jesus is a crutch. I don't want to come to him. I don't want a crutch. Jesus is not a crutch. He's a rock. A rock that you can stand upon with certainty in the midst of the fiercest storm that's raging all around. And if you don't stand upon that rock and don't come to Christ, you will drown in the storm. And the judgments are coming. So come to him now. Jesus is gentle and lowly of heart. And so he invites all. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those who come to the Lord and experience this comfort and affliction, this hope, can look to the future at a glorious day of celebrating the triumph of God over affliction. Certain of the worship of all of God's people, and this psalm ends, speaking of the congregation coming together and everyone sharing with one another, let me tell you how the Lord came to me in my affliction and how he sustained me. What a glory awaits us in heaven as we testify to the Lord giving us hope in affliction. And yet it's not just for one group. The Lord wants to bring in peoples from all the nations. All the nations are going to worship him for the God who took our afflictions so that we could have hope. And the future generations that are to come. This is not just a message for one generation, but generation passing on to another to another, declaring that the Lord has been faithful to me and he will be faithful to you in the midst of affliction. This is a psalm that ends in great hope because we see the afflicted one 
crying out to the Lord, and then clinging to those certainties. And so, in application, I urge you to cry out to God in your affliction. Take the book of Psalms and pray these prayers, and you will find the Lord bring the comfort you need. Secondly, hold on to those certainties. Hold on to God's holiness that never changes. Hold on to his faithfulness that you see in the past and to the great and glorious future that awaits all those who are in Christ. As Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, so for the joy that is set before us, God gives us the grace to endure whatever hardship he chooses for us to pass through. And last, keep thinking on Christ in your afflictions. Don't move past Christ. He experienced the greatest affliction, so he knows and understands and will sympathize with you. So I run to Christ when torn by grief and find abundant peace. I too had tears, he gently speaks. Thus joy and sorrow meet. Please pray with me. O Father, my weak and stammering tongue cannot accurately describe your Son, but I ask in conclusion that you, by your Spirit, would help us all to see how glorious he is. And as we behold his beauty, we will be changed from one degree of glory to another, that those here who have never seen, who still have a veil that's blocking their vision from seeing Christ, that you would remove that veil and let them be stunned at what a glorious, triumphant King is our Lord Jesus, who persevered through all of the affliction, keeping his trust in you. Lord, we need your help. You have spoken to us now, and we confess we will fall on our face if we depend upon ourselves when we face affliction in our own strength. We're coming in prayer asking for you. Oh, Lord, help us to cry out to you. Help us to cling to what we know with absolute certainty that you are our God who is holy and faithful. And please fill us with hope to face whatever it is that's coming next. Give us hope. It is coming soon when we will gather together and all shout praises for you being faithful to each of us and bringing us through and allowing us the joy of beholding Christ and seeing his hands and his feet that were pierced for us and knowing there's only one reason we made it to the end is because Christ offered himself for us and continually intercedes for us. And so we bring all these things, claiming his name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.